Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Yeah, we're Texans, Tyler. I know you're out in California now, but you spent some considerable time in the great state of Texas. Honorary Texan here. Honorary. <laughs> honorary honorary Texan. And uh, we're going to do a show today focused on uh, the Texas coast uh, with the guest, Tyler, that I'm always happy to talk to a great friend of the podcast and uh, an expert um, on the Texas coast. And I think one of the most uh, dynamic and innovative thinkers in the coastal profession in America. A real pleasure to bring back to the American Shoreline podcast, uh, Tyler, uh, Jim Blackburn from Houston, Texas. Well, we love talking to Jim about uh, the Texas coast. Jim is a legend on the Texas coast, uh, has has a legacy that goes back to uh, the 90s and maybe even beyond. Yeah. <laughs> and, Earlier. Uh, yeah. It goes back and, further and, than that, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the, the truth is that uh, we love talking, going into detail on this show, giving you the the nuanced perspectives. This isn't clickbait. This is the real deal discussion. Mm -hmm. And Jim is the type of thought leader that we love to bring you, particularly particularly this time of year as we are looking back on 2022. Uh, Jim writes an annual uh, holiday newsletter that is, this is not a, a quick one pager. This is a major digest of what has occurred on the Texas coast over the past year. And because he does this every year, this is a really wonderful opportunity to look back longitudinally (laughs) at uh, the history of the Texas coast, at least going back to the 90s, as long as Jim has been doing this exercise of writing this really cool holiday newsletter. So, Peter, on today's show, we're going to get to go through this newsletter, look back at the year that was on the Texas coast and discuss some of the big trends, some of the things that are changing. And there are things changing, ladies and gentlemen. So it's going to be a great one. But before we get into it, Peter, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Well, Jim Blackburn, welcome back to the American Shoreline Podcast for our annual end-of-year wrap-up on Texas coastal issues. Really appreciate you taking time out to speak to our listeners. You bet, Peter. It's good to be with you and Tyler again. Well, for the benefit of the folks out there who may not uh, have heard uh, from Jim Blackburn in the past, Jim is the president and the chief executive officer of an organization called B Carbon. 
It is a nonprofit uh, that issues carbon credits uh, for coastal restoration projects and activities. We're going to learn more about the latest from B Carbon, some exciting developments. Uh, Jim also serves on the Matagorda Bay Foundation uh, board and is also with the Texas Coastal Exchange. Uh, he teaches at Rice University in the Civil and Environmental Engineering Department and is part of the great team of research scientists and experts at the Severe Storm Center of Rice University called the Speed Center and is a faculty scholar at the Baker Institute at Rice University as well. So a true professional on the coast of Texas. And uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I love your annual Texas Coastal Newsletter. As Tyler said, it's not a, a small undertaking. This is a 35-page rundown of the major developments on the Texas coast in the last year, and then some historic perspective it's always great to get this damn thing. Jim, uh, thank you for sending it out. We're going to post it on Coastal News today. Um, but uh, give us the highlights, Jim, if you would. Uh, tell us what uh, what caught your attention in putting together the Texas Coastal Holiday Newsletter for 2022. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm very much involved in nature-based carbon and uh, at, at uh, B Carbon, which is a group, a nonprofit that we created out of a stakeholder group at the Baker Institute at Rice. Um, we have uh, uh, really embarked on a, a serious effort on coastal blue carbon uh, credits. And, you know, that to me has been one of the most important accomplishments. I think the the whole kind of evolution of what I would call the ESG era, era the environmental social governance um, Kind of thinking that really kind of emerged out of the financial institutions in kind of January of 2020 with uh, BlackRock's uh, big movement and then uh, followed really by most of the financial institutions. That is having ramifications up and down the coast. And I think more generally, uh, there is a, I, I would say, I'm almost a, a softening, a, a changing of the attitudes of of uh, both the refining and chemical industry, steel industry, toward, I think, environmental issues, kind of realizing that uh, it's not just regulation, it's not just a bunch of crazy environmentalists out there, but that, that this the issue of environment is a socio-cultural issue, it's a financial issue, as well as a regulatory issue, and it's not going to go away. And the, it, it's moving into the boardroom. It's, it's totally transforming industry. Uh, so those are some of the things I noticed, along with I kind of uh, wanted to lament the, uh, if you will, the decline of the commercial fishing industry, uh, because there was such an important voice at one time on the Texas coast in terms of fighting to keep the coast uh, uh, from being degraded. They were willing to undertake uh, politically perhaps stupid uh, positions uh, <laughs> that a lot of the other groups were unwilling to do. And it was really, I think, an important voice that's going to be missed on the Texas coast. Um, white boots, uh, white rubber boots in the bars along the intercoastal waterway are declining. So I don't see that as a positive, although there certainly are impact issues to the fisheries from commercial fishing. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, 
something had to give with, with the fishery, but unfortunately, the commercial voice is one that I think will be missed. You begin your newsletter with this kind of uh, description of the change on the Texas coast, and you you qualify it by saying, you know, that uh, the it looks the same. You still see a lot of the same type of activity, but that there are changes that are, let's just say, invisible but quite detectable from your perception. And you, and you d- you described, you know, changes in the boardroom. But you know, for our listeners, uh, what c- could you talk a little bit more about what it was? You know, what did we change to? Where were we before? I mean. You have a history of uh, using litigation uh, to enforce environmental regulations. Uh, are you telling me that th- we're in a new era now and the posture of the industrial aspects of the Texas coast have changed? You know, I really think they have. I'm not saying that litigation is unimportant or unnecessary. I, I think that they're, they're litigation has played and will continue to play an important role. But I think there are other tools in the tool chest uh, that we didn't used to have. And I think that many of the major environmental groups nationally have um, have failed to really capitalize on these tools. The economics of coastal refining, of coastal export of oil and gas, the the issues associated with holdups to permitting a, a, that come with, con, you know, with with conflict as opposed to compromise, uh, I think those lessons have not been been lost on some of the more progressive and I think some of the more successful companies. I think the combination of kind of integrating environmental thinking in the boardroom from an economic standpoint, but also from a uh, timing standpoint. I mean, Frankly, one of the biggest tools we had in litigation was holding something up uh, until perhaps the market window had passed. Um, I know that happened with the copper plant on the Texas coast. Uh, I know that has happened with several different um, commercial operations that I'm aware of that that just simply couldn't get permitted in time. And, you know, for example, uh, there's a... uh, uh, a lot of interest in exporting oil from the Texas coast. And uh, rather than digging deep channels into the coast to simply put uh, offshore uh, loading facilities uh, out into the deeper waters of the Gulf of Mexico, where basically the uh, the tanker comes up, ties off to the mooring buoy, gets loaded up and, and leaves and really never... Uh, needs to kind of, if you will, invade the coast, uh, doesn't require an 80-foot channel being dredged. Um, that, is, that, you know, that gets permitted a lot quicker than coming in with an onshore terminal and uh, with protracted litigation. And I think that is that lesson is being heard by a number of the, uh, the different um, uh, offshore uh, groups that are out there. And I think that, frankly, if we're going to export oil, we ought to do it in the least environmentally damaging way. And uh, I think we're finding that there are companies that are willing to to go and do that. That's different. Uh, you know, those types of, if you will, compromise seeking, alternative seeking uh, development plans are, I think, a wonderful positive indication. Uh, 
And I think others will continue to be fought and held up. It's good to hear that, Jim. I mean, Texas is the number one oil and gas producing state in America. It is the export terminal for U.S. oil and gas products around the world. Uh, we've seen an incredible uh, interest in expanded LNG uh, export facilities on the Texas coast. Uh, and, you're, and, and as you're pointing out, uh, trying to find a way to get this oil and gas off the shoreline and out into the market uh, without dredging huge channels through Texas bays and estuaries is one of the topics. And it's encouraging to hear that the companies who are pursuing these kinds of projects are opening their eyes a little bit to least uh, to, to less damaging alternatives. A good sign, I would agree, uh, that we're in a topic we watch closely on Coastal News today. Uh, but this broader uh, concept that you're writing about in the holiday newsletter this year really has to do with uh, the alternatives to command and control regulation and litigation, the emerging uh, consensus that uh, responsible economic use of the coast can be found and that the restoration and protection of the Texas coast can be driven by market incentives. And uh, Jim, it's a concept I think that you laid out in your book in 2017 called the Texan Plan for the Texas Coast, uh, which I believe is still available, uh, Jim, for purchase <laughs> maybe on Amazon. It's available on Amazon and Texas A&M University Press would be able to provide it as well. Yeah, 2017, forward thinking, looking at these economic incentive opportunities uh, to drive coastal restoration. Talk to us about that change and how that's been manifested in the last couple of years of your work uh, leading to uh, B Carbon in the Texas Coastal Exchange. Set that up for us, uh, for our listeners. Well, it's, it's very interesting, uh, Peter. It goes back um, probably to oh, the 2007-2008 timeframe. Uh, I was on the board of a group called Houston Wilderness. And Elizabeth Jones, uh, who is also from Houston, uh, she and I were appointed to be the head of the green think tank there. And we were just putting ideas together. And, and about the same time over at the Speed Center, the Severe Storm Center at Rice, we got a grant from Houston Endowment to study lessons learned from Hurricane Ike. And we realized there's a tremendous amount of low-lying land on the Texas coast uh, that should never be developed. And we also realized that in Texas, you're not going to regulate to prevent that development. And so Elizabeth and I were thinking about um, something called ecological services that um, had been popularized by a study by Robert Costanza, a wonderful economist. Uh, I think he wrote in Nature back in the late 90s about the, eco the dollar value of the ecological services that are provided. And Elizabeth and I were, were kind of putting our heads together about how we could uh, maybe monetize those benefits to landowners on the Texas coast. And if we can get enough cash flow coming to those landowners, there would be not as great of an incentive to uh, develop the property and turn it into ranchettes and housing and things like that. And we found in talking to landowners, there was a lot of interest uh, in keeping their ranches intact and in not developing their lands if we could increase that cash flow. So we developed a concept of a voluntary carbon market on the Texas coast, uh, went uh, to the Baker Institute at Rice, and in 2019, we set up a 
stakeholder group there that was going to consider all of these different ideas. And this was after publishing in 2017 these concepts in a Texan plan for the Texas coast. And the stakeholder group was really excited about it, but we quickly realized the existing international system, which comes out of the Kyoto Protocol, and uh, I think it was from 1997. The Kyoto Protocol's uh, voluntary system of carbon credit transactions uh, just had too many requirements, uh, some of which we felt were totally unreasonable for most of our Texas landowners to want to participate. And so uh, through this stakeholder group, we set about to write our own protocol and uh, shopped it to some of the uh, more established uh, groups that were issuing carbon credits. And we did not find a very good response. Uh, they, they said they were relatively happy with their own system. But we knew that system wouldn't work for Texas landowners. And so we came back to our stakeholder group and explained this uh, situation to them. And they said, well, why don't you create your own carbon registry? And so coming out of that kind of long convoluted story, uh, going back to 2007, in 2021, we created an entity called B Carbon. It's a nonprofit, uh, non-governmental organization. And we were certified by 501c3 by the Internal Revenue Service. And we have issued a protocol for soil carbon. We have recently issued a protocol for forest carbon credits. And we are working on developing a blue carbon coastal Spartana alternative flora marsh carbon credit, which we think will be both unique and the first of its type in the world because we're requiring the construction of breakwater living shorelines in association with those marshes we have to protect the marshes to basically create the ability for credits. But the bottom line is that we basically went out and created a carbon credit registry that we felt addressed the major shortcomings of the existing system, and that's called B-Carbon. It's an important step forward. Uh, I think that, as you explained in the newsletter, the voluntary carbon market is a is a particularly powerful device that can be used to uh, promote and finance and ensure a coastal a protection of a sensitive coastal uh, lands, marshes, and coastal prairies, in addition to uh, underwriting and funding the restoration um, and enhancement of, of marsh systems on the Texas coast that are threatened by sea level rise. And so in other words, in, we're shifting from an era where command and control uh, was the way to get uh, changes on the ground to an economic-based system, B-carbon being an important early adopter uh, and proponent uh, of developing such a system. Uh, you're talking about coastal blue carbon credits uh, now and developing that protocol. Um Tell our audience what a blue carbon credit is and how would one establish uh, that they exist and how would you market a blue carbon credit? How does it actually work? Well, the, uh, particularly on the Texas coast and upper Texas coast, uh, mid-Texas mid coast, we have uh, Spartina alternaflora marshes, uh, saltgrass, the grasses that grow at the edge of the bay. 
And these put a lot of carbon, uh, they take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere by photosynthesis. They store a tremendous amount of carbon in the soil of the marsh. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, currently marshes that have about 400 to 600 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent uh, stored in the soil uh, beneath the plants. Uh, that's just an incredibly rich uh, carbon uh, sink, if you will. And what we became aware of, uh, we were very interested early on in giving credits for the annual sequestration of the marshes and realized that in, if we didn't do something about sea level rise affecting these marshes, uh, we were going to lose these marshes. I mean, right now, we are on course to lose most of the marshes in the coastal United States. Um, and these are incredibly important. I mean, these marshes have been valued by environmental economists at producing like $25,000 per acre per year in ecological services. They support our fisheries. Uh, but there is no comprehensive plan that we have seen to protect these marshes from sea level rise. Everyone just kind of throws their hands up and says, uh oh, well, that's going to be bad. Well, what we figured is that if we could uh, design living shorelines and breakwaters, we can prevent the toe of the marsh from being eroded. That is the start of a long term plan to protect the marshes. We believe that we can protect the carbon that is already stored in the marsh, and that's carbon that will be lost if the marsh dies and if sea level rise basically kills the marsh plants, uh, that toe of that marsh will kind of eat back through the marsh, kind of like sugar sand. Uh, it's, it's not going to stand up very well without a vibrant root system and without a, a, a vibrant marsh. So step one, let's protect the toe of the wetland. And so we're setting about, we, we wrote a book, uh, we wrote a book, wrote a paper called uh, The Thousand Mile Shoreline Concept. Uh, that was written by a group called Texas Coastal Exchange with grant funding from uh, John Torch of Seattle and the Meadows Foundation out of Dallas. And that thousand mile shoreline project caught the attention of a group of investors who contacted us and said, hey, we think this is a pretty good idea of building a breakwater to protect the marsh and creating credits around the avoided conversion. That breakwater would also allow then the landowner to receive some income from the marsh that they were going to lose. And in fact, when talking to coastal landowners, many of them are very concerned about losing their marshes. And so we are offering a credit concept that will actually protect both private and public property uh, from uh, really the ravages of erosion that will be accelerated by sea level rise. So that's the basic concept. And these uh, investors, uh, apparently I didn't respond very quickly. And they finally wrote and said, please get hold of us. We're very serious. And uh, they, they have committed $500 million to breakwaters on the Texas coast as part of our Living Shoreline Carbon Credit Program. $500 million, uh, which is an extraordinary uh, number. Uh, Jim, congratulations to you and your team. Uh, I know you can't disclose who that investor is at the moment, that there's work behind the scenes necessary to bring that announcement officially forward. But uh, it's got to be tremendously uh, gratifying uh, after years of putting this concept together to think someone is 
in the wings and ready to put substantial, substantial fund of money behind this concept of a thousand mile living shoreline restoration project on the Texas coast. So just congrats. I just want to jump in here, uh, Jim. Oh, and I would echo, of course, that the uh, that is a an incredible investment. Congratulations. What, you know, I imagine it makes sense. I, I have to say, I think for folks all around the American shoreline, whether in your, you're in Louisiana, Florida, the Carolinas, up north, uh, uh, in New England, the notion of protecting your coastal ecosystems that are already in existence, that are already naturally there, is, uh, Peter, it's something that I believe was cited uh, quite numerously in the IPCC report as well, that, that we have to protect our natural carbon sinks. So what's great about this project is that it puts that right at the top. And in addition to uh, being a protection device for the existing natural infrastructure, it also creates the potential for additional carbon capture in the breakwater itself if that is indeed a healthy piece of habitat. So this, to me, is a really cool uh, innovation on the shoreline that has ramifications uh, all around the American shoreline, really, and, and probably around the world. But an important part of this, Jim, and in making it pay for the landowners, of course, they're interested in, in protecting their land, so they have a, a, an incentive there, but there's also this carbon incentive. Could you talk about technologically, how, and, and you know, pr as a matter of practice, how could, how will uh, bee carbon and this, this ecosystem of measuring the value of, of the, the, the grasses or whatever, the marshes, how, how is this done? And, and are we there yet? Are there challenges to get to a point where we can measurably say that you know, X amount of carbon has been captured or saved? Well, we're very fortunate on the Texas coast in that uh, Dr. Rusty Fagan over at Texas A&M University has done an extensive study for NASA where he has gone through and has compiled um, uh, both the uh, existing data that's out there and his own analysis of that data to come up with a stored carbon estimate for the most of the wetland areas in the Texas coast. Uh, we're in the process. Um, we've received uh, funding uh, among other from other places. Uh, we also, uh, Valero Energy Foundation has funded us to uh, con contract with researchers to do studies to support uh, this coastal concept. And so we've got Rusty putting together the database that um, will basically identify for every one of these wetlands, um, a, you know, the, an estimate as of a couple of years ago is what the sequestered carbon was. And also he's got estimates of the annual sequestration rates as well, based on reported literature. Um, these marshes are very prolific. Um, what we're also very interested in is the expansion of marshes inland with sea level rise. And if landowners can realize some royalty income from the carbon, then there'll be an incentive to allow that marsh to migrate inland. Uh, right now, landowners don't make any money off the marsh. The public benefits tremendously from private ownership of marshlands. And there's no payment back to the landowners. Coastal fishermen don't pay for the shrimp and the, uh, the, uh, the flounder, the blue crab. Uh, all of these um, kind of 
kind of key elements of the coastal ecosystem depend on the marsh. And we just don't reflect that at all in the economy of the coast. And to my mind, this is the first step in beginning to kind of appropriately compensate for what the marsh does. I mean, one can see 100 years from now a total reversal in how the economics uh, kind of translate for the coast. Uh, There are those that talk about a circular economy. Well, this is one piece of it, which is the payment to get the carbon cycle kind of set back. But there's all sorts of circles and cycles in ecology that probably ought to have cash flow going with them. That's the future. What we're seeing today is the first step of a changing of our economic structure of reward for landowners. And this would translate into prairies and prairie restoration. It will translate into the way you handle your forest. It'll transfer, I think, trans, uh, translate into all aspects of land ownership in the United States and, frankly, around the world. Uh, there is value in things that we have never valued before, and they will become important commodities in the future. And this is kind of step one. A huge first step. Uh, you mentioned in the in the newsletter the possibility over the next 20, 25 years that more than a million acres of coastal habitat on the Texas coast could be uh, protected through the application of carbon credits or land management credits of some sort. It's a bold, uh, it's a bold uh, objective, Jim. Uh, the thousand mile living shoreline project that you've talked about with the first 250 miles of that project seemingly already funded, another bold agenda going forward. Uh, this past earlier this month, Jim, NOAA released a carbon removal strategy, a coastal carbon removal strategy document uh, that outlined and assessed in broad terms the particular uh several different techniques to offset carbon emissions, uh, direct air capture being one, but also coastal land management practices similar to what you're describing and uh, B-Carbon is uh, promoting were also addressed, as was uh, ocean-enhanced alkalinity through the use of olivine sand, a project that, uh, a, a technique that I'm involved with in my, uh, in my association with VESTA. Um, what did you make of NOAA's uh, carbon removal strategy, and how do you see the federal government uh, supporting and promoting and enhancing these initiatives in the future? Well, I think you know the the, the NOAA document is an important, uh, I think, you know, kind of marker of the change in perception that is occurring, uh, but. I've got to say, I'm a little disappointed in the governmental response. I'm not sure if if your listeners are aware of 45Q, but that's a provision in the tax code that allows for payments or for tax credits to be claimed by companies that pursue technological alternatives, such as direct air capture or or stack carbon capture. Nature-based systems are specifically eliminated from that tax credit. So what I would tell you is there's there's no real advocacy group yet for nature-based credits, not like there is for technological credits. And uh, I would say that's a a shortcoming that in Congress um, and in in the administration, 
lobbying does have an effect, and there's no real lobby for nature-based alternatives. And I think that's one of the things that uh, we're uh, we're seeing that it, that is occurring. Uh, we believe the nature-based systems will emerge regardless of the lobbying efforts. But it's just interesting that that we we don't we don't pursue nature with the aggression that we pursue technology. And I think that that has to do with the fact that the companies are more comfortable with technology. Uh, nature has ne- not necessarily ever been the friend of, uh, of an oil and gas company. It's, you know, endangered species, slow things up, wetland permits. Uh, nature has always been seen as an impediment. And I think it's, it's, it's a pretty big mind switch to, to see nature as an economic solution. And I think that's true with government as well. And so I think a lot of what we've been doing is is spending a lot of time educating people about uh, the importance of this technology called photosynthesis and the fact that it works. But what it involves is organizing people more than buying and installing a piece of technology. And that's different. It's it's. I guess in a way it's somewhat scary in that there's a lot of things that seem a bit out of, uh, out of control. It's an unregulated market. Um, but what we're finding is there's a tremendous interest in this area with um, many, most all of the major emitters. They would like to have nature as part of their suite of alternatives. And what we've been trying to tell the buyers is, they're going to need to start helping us develop the nature-based infrastructure because I, I perceive a gap, in, you know, assuming the 50% reduction goal by 2030 is maintained you know, up to that date. In the United States, we've got about 6 billion, with a B, tons of uh, carbon dioxide equivalent emissions per year. Uh, 50% reduction is 3 billion. And... The projections I've seen show that even with all the Q45 uh, uh, technology uh, underwriting and, um, and support, with all of the current plans that are out there, the Inflation Reduction Act, we're still going to have a shortfall of 600 million to 1.5 billion tons of carbon dioxide removal by 2030. That's going to be made up most likely by nature-based solutions. And that's huge. Well, you're talking about uh, offsetting up to 50, I think it's, as you said, 50% of the emissions from the United States by 20, is it 2050? 2030, uh, yeah, I'd say offsetting having um, 25 to 50% of the total reduction. In the the NOAA uh, carbon removal strategy document, they point out that not only do we have to massively offset the emissions that are currently being expelled in the United States or worldwide uh, to truly address climate change, we've got to go net negative. That means offsetting all of the emissions and then beginning the process of extracting the CO2 that's in the atmosphere now. Uh, This is the bold agenda that I think the IPCC quite clearly understands and, uh, and, the federal government, uh, at least as evidenced in, in the NOAA strategy that came out December 1st, uh, is also recognizing. Jim, one of the big questions in the NOAA document is talking about the nature of the of the carbon offsets that can be created. You've mentioned direct air capture. Uh, we're both familiar with secure geologic storage, the uh, 
another technique that is incorporated into 45Q, uh, uh, an important uh, initiative there. But you're, you're right in saying that 45Q does not include uh, nature-based uh, offsets at this time. Uh, I think I, I support the view that that should be included in, in 45Q. My question, though, Jim, and, and this is one of the debates that's going on right now in terms of offset approaches, is the issue of permanence of the credits. And uh, while uh, wetlands, mangroves, marshes uh, sequester tremendous amounts of carbon, the status of those uh, of of that sequestration is uh, reversible if uh, the marsh were to be destroyed or burned. Or can, can you speak to the issue of permanence and why nature-based credits make sense uh, from that perspective? Well, I think that permanence is a key issue, and permanence has been one of the wraps, if you will, of nature-based uh, uh, credits and offsets. Uh, in the marsh, I think that the, the key is a long-term strategy for marsh protection. I mean, I think we have to admit that the marshes are likely to be destroyed by sea level rise. By putting breakwaters, by physically building breakwaters to protect the toe of the marsh, uh, that is a first step toward long-term permanence. We're also looking at working with the Corps of Engineers and uh, with their with Arctic, their research group to try to find ways to augment sedimentation and sediment flows into marsh. We're looking at uh, alternatives to increase sedimentation within the marsh to try to help the marsh keep up with sea level rise. Historically, marshes have been able to keep up with uh, various uh, kind of natural uh, sea level rise in, in many areas if they have adequate sediment. So the first step is protecting the toe of the marsh and then we'll work on sediment trapping. We think the way we design breakwaters uh, will be again, a first step on the sediment side of things. Uh, I'm not, I mean, we feel fairly comfortable that we've got 50 years with the marshes, uh, beyond 50 years. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say much of anything uh, beyond 50 years. Um, once we get into soil and soil storage, I mean, there's no question that with soils, as long as we don't um, uh, plow them, we will have thousands of years of permanence. I mean, the, the carbon in the soil will stay there. Now, not all carbon in the soil will stay there, but we, re we require measurement on our, our soil carbon protocols. And there, you know, there, there will be, if you will, a release back into the atmosphere of some, but there'll be a net buildup over time. The credits we're looking to for soil carbon will be the net buildup credits. Uh, with regard to commercial timber, we're looking at uh, developing a protocol that will follow the timber through the lumber mill and they finished timber all the way into the building. And in the building, the, frankly, the company can come and see the resting place for the carbon, if you will. So, you know, permanence um, yeah, is a important goal. I think nature-based systems are in great shape uh, for offering 50 years or, you know, and we think more than 50 years of permanence. These are transition credits. These are bridge concepts. These are concepts to help us get from where we are to where we need to be and to keep the atmosphere from being loaded up in the short term. Uh, long term, I think that we're going to change our economy. 
to say to, to basically transition all the way. And I think if you know in terms of net negative, nature is going to be our best long-term net negative solution. Um, I'm not sure we can depend on direct air capture uh, to continue to perform. It may get better and better, but I think nature is part of that long-term solution. And you know, some leakage will occur. There'll be some failures, but I think in the long term, nature will be as much of an important part of this portfolio as any other alternative. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That is the through line. I think, Jim, uh, if if I may say so, I would characterize it in your career, uh, valuing the ecosystem services, the beauty, the importance of the Texas coast, protecting it, uh, be it through legal action be it through uh, scientific and academic inquiry, and now through this uh, pushing this kind of new economy, new way of looking at it philosophy, <clears throat> which is, I think, absolutely the direction we need to go. And uh, I, I just have to say, it's fascinating to me, uh, Peter and Jim, that, that here we are, we're reflecting back on uh, the year. Uh, and of course, they're, they're, the newsletter is full of specific 2022 developments and check-ins on the coast. It's not all this big picture stuff, but it's interesting to me that we talk about this big picture stuff. I mean, carbon, climate change, CO2 in the atmosphere, capturing it. Th- these are, uh, I think, some of the they're the param- they're the drivers of uh, it's the disease we got to cure. You know. And uh, all of the other uh, coastal processes, um, if we can, if we can get the carbon thing under control, get sea level rise and climate change, at least to a place where we can manage it, uh, we can probably get through it. But Jim, I, lo- I love your take. I-, I I think that it's absolutely the truth that uh, natural systems are what we need to value as a human species, really. Um, that's a, that is a change for us. Yeah, and something I haven't mentioned too much is the breakwater itself. Uh, we're working with the Palacios Marine Agricultural Research Group, PMAR, and they're creating an oyster, uh, they're creating several oyster hatcheries uh, that will be available to uh, basically seed oyster spat on these breakwaters we're creating. Uh, we are very hopeful that we can create oyster reefs, if you will, out of the breakwaters that we're building so that the reef itself will grow with sea level rise. And that is a kind of that's the part of the living shoreline I hadn't mentioned that I think is incredibly important. And we've we've got really uh, some of the best oyster experts on the Texas coast working with us. And if we can get that breakwater to grow with the uh, increase in sea level, that will uh, help expand our protection to the marsh over time and will maintain that breakwater way beyond 50 years. All right, Jim, I I got a question for you. I got a question for you. So uh, this is bigger than 2022 retrospection, but um, you do possess, I think, you know, Peter, uh, we've uh, had some time with Charles Lester out here in California, former uh, executive director of the California Coastal Commission, like you, Jim, attorney. He is a lawyer. He views the world through the lens of the law, 
uh, as as you do, Peter, at least to a certain degree, and as as you do, Jim, uh, uh, of course. And you also are involved in academia, in science, and you work with. Um, it's an interesting. It's an interesting. Uh, perspective that you bring. And we, some of our listeners are younger, they're at the start of their career. Could you talk a little bit about your perspective as that perspective that you bring, uh, the, the legal background, looking at coastal issues through that frame, and talk a little bit about how, what, what skill set and what perspectives you think we need uh, to achieve this uh, breakwater project and other, you know, this this transition in how we view the coast. Well, I would start by saying that this is not traditional environmental law. The voluntary carbon market is unregulated. Uh, we are we have developed our own set of rules, if you will, which we call a protocol. Uh, these are all kind of open and available for review. All of our proceedings at B Carbon are transparent and are open to the stakeholder group that anyone can join for free. Um, my email is jim.blackburn at bcarbon.org. And that will that you know you can you can join uh, anyone can become a member of the, of that and um, you know we think that um, by being transparent and have, having our rules open this turns it into not a regulatory type of thing but more of a contracts type of law so it's really the contractual agreements that we reach with landowners with governmental agencies uh, with the different entities involved. So it's a, it's very much of a transactional environmental law as opposed to a regulatory environmental law at the current time. Now, the growing, the growing Climate Solutions Act has just been added to the, the big, I think, omnibus spending bill. And so we may have some sort of oversight coming in the Department of Agriculture for these various voluntary systems. I think this is primarily designed to protect landowners and to keep them from getting... Um, kind of hustled by entrepreneurs that are perhaps not fully um, up and up. Um, I welcome that. I think that, you know, having certainly registration and uh, some type of oversight is fine. Uh, I do think that government regulation in this area will stifle creativity. And at this point, we're just learning how to do this. And I think to assume that we know enough to, to put a hard set of regulations in place would be a mistake. That would be a change. I mean, I, I am a dyed-in-the-wool environmental regulatory lawyer from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and uh, that's a big transition for me. But I am convinced that this is the only way that we can get the mass. I mean, we've got to get hundreds of billions of tons of nature-based credits uh, out there certified and operating. Uh, we, we've got a lot of transition to make, and I'm not sure that a regulated market is the best way to do it. But that's a big change for me. It's a big change in the system. And I would say that economics and the change in economics is where I would point young people uh, to at least include in their vision of what a future might look like for them. I like it. You know, we got to start somewhere in building the new uh, mousetraps that we're going to need to tackle climate change, uh, the emergence of these credit-based systems, the, the use of economic incentives and drivers to not only 
uh, incentivize the behavior of landowners to be more uh, conservation-minded on critical coastal habitat is great, but also using these credit systems to finance the restoration of wetlands that are being threatened by sea level rise. Jim, it's the way to go. Uh, and we agree that uh, that uh, not all the uh, details have been worked out. Uh, this is an emerging area. It's great to see you at the forefront and B Carbon uh, taking a lead in trying to sort out how these can be uh, undertaken responsibly. Uh, I've got a you know I, one of the things I look forward to in the in the Texas Coastal Holiday Newsletter, Jim, is you always have uh, uh, art and you've got and there's always poetry. And I know you are a poet, and we're going to get to some of your poetry uh, uh, in the 2022 holiday newsletter. But uh, before we do that, I have to ask uh, what your uh, reaction is to Congress's decision in the last uh, week to fund the Ike Dyke Project, the Texas Coastal Barrier, the $32 plus billion project to uh, protect the petrochemical industry and the Galveston Bay system and the Galveston Island area. Uh, it's a huge project. You and your colleagues at the Speed Center have been intimately involved in commenting and uh, participating in the planning of this project. Uh, apparently, it is now funded. Jim, what do you think? Well, it's funded for really the next phase, and I think it's incredibly important that it be funded. Uh, but what, what we have here is a tiered environmental impact statement system. And really what's being funded is, is the work to go into the second stage of detailed environmental analysis and design. I'm not sure anything is going to be constructed yet. So I think it's important that people understand that, that this is an ongoing kind of evolving design and construction. We need a coastal barrier. There's no question. We need help at the coast. Um, we also think there's a need for an in-bay barrier. Part of the uh, plan that has been funded includes two gate structures, one on Clear Lake and one on um, uh, Dickinson Bayou. And, and we are working on an in-bay solution called the Galveston Bay Park Plan, and um, we hope at some point perhaps to be able to substitute the park plan for the two gate structures on uh, Clear Lake and on uh, Dickinson Bayou. Uh, so, you know, we're really working on the in-bay component to go with the, uh, if you will, the coastal kind of first line of defense. Uh, we are, are looking at a second line of defense. We think both are necessary to protect against Category 4 or 5 storms, which is what I am most worried about with regard to the Houston Ship Channel and that industrial complex. Um, that's just a disaster waiting to happen up there. And even with coastal, uh, the coastal spine constructed, uh, that really only protects up to about a Category 2 storm uh, for up the Ship Channel. Once we get into the three, four, fives. Uh, we're going to need something in the bay that's very, very substantial. Well, I think uh, it, it's been it's been uh, gratifying to see the work that the Speed Center has done in uh, the review of the plans for this, uh, which which would be and is is billed to be the most expensive uh, coastal protection project in U.S. history, were it fully funded and executed. Jim, I have to ask you. Uh, we are going to, as you say, it's a tiered process, a tiered plan, which has various levels of protection built into a long-term strategy to protect uh, Galveston Bay, petrochemicals, 
complex and 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 the communities in, in the system. Uh, a lot of the uh, restoration and uh, protection is nature-based. There are oyster reefs planned. There's lots and lots of marsh restoration projects. There's beach and dune restoration components to this strategy. Uh, do you sort of find yourself wondering if there's any possibility of integrating carbon credits into this gigantic program to protect the Galveston Bay system in Galveston and Houston? We're actually having conversations about that. And um, if we could find a way to introduce private funding to kind of expedite some of the um, down the coast, uh, some of the uh, wetland protection, some of the wetland enhancement aspects, um, that would be, I think, very welcomed by both uh, the state and federal governments as a public-private joint venture. So we are pursuing that. Well, I won't tell you that we I can't tell you that we're very far along yet, but we have opened those conversations and they they have occurred and are ongoing. Glad to hear it. Uh, Jim, before we sign off, uh, thank you for taking the time on the show. Uh, if people want to learn, we're going to do some poetry here, Jim. But before I turn uh, the final word over to you. Uh, I want to just make sure the listeners out there know how to get in touch and learn more about B Carbon. It's B, the letter B, carbon, uh, .org is the website. And Jim, I think you said jim.blackburn at bcarbon.org. Reach out to Jim. This is some of the most innovative uh, thinking on coastal restoration, particularly incentivizing uh, restoration activities through carbon credit sales. Uh, Jim, I'd Thank you for for sharing the newsletter with the with us all. Uh, we've posted it on Coastal News today, so if you want to see it, uh, Jim's uh, it's right at the top of the issue today. And uh, Jim, tell us uh, what, what why don't you share with us some of uh, the selected poems that are included included your choice. Uh, but uh, final word from from you. And well, let's start with one. Let's start with one because I actually I've I've pecked away a little poem here for Jim that I'm going to read in between Jim's readings. Okay. Well, I'll start with the white pelican uh, poem that I wrote recently. Uh, we had come to the to the bay at the end of the day. The fog and the rain had burned away. With the sun, the birds had come out to play. I love to come back to Matagorda Bay. The boat sped down the water like glass. My eyelids pushed shut. We were moving fast. Down the intercoastal and around a bend. Oh, it was so nice to be back again. The osprey was perched on the highest branch, sitting and munching on his latest catch. The silvery fish grasped by talons of steel. A sobering sight, both real and surreal. Along the channel, the kingfisher rose, chittering away telling all of its woes about his dismay that we chose this day to interrupt his fishing on Matagorda Bay. The white form emerged sitting on a log This was that was firmly grounded in the soft, silty bog. A perch she shared with her cousins brown, a dominant presence only missing a crown. For the white pelican ruled this perfect roost that the process of nature had produced. Geology in action, a snapshot in time, an image so powerful, so sublime. Later, the flock was working together, all in a line as if on a tether, herding the fish so all could feed, working so all could meet their need. I left with the image of this big white bird, compelling me to write a poetic word. 
setting out for all the beauty and the power of soul-stirring flashes from a magic hour. So welcome to Earth Church. Pull yourself up a pew. Here we honor the white pelican, and you might too. Man, that is superb, Jim. I love it. It reminds me of Guy Clark. Kind of a Guy Clark sound there. I love it. If I could could emulate Guy Clark, I would be very happy. (laughs) Well, I like it. The Earth Church part is Guy Clark-ian. All right. Well, I while we were recording, of course, I was listening intently, but I had to uh, I had to sketch out a little a little poem for you, Jim. So here we go. Okay. Here, here we go. As we turn the page to a new year's start, we look ahead with hope and expectation, and honor those who help mend the heart and guide us on a path of preservation. And so we honor Jim Blackburn, man of law, a champion of the Texas coastal wild, whose tireless work and vision evermore defends the beauty and land undefiled. He stands as a beacon in the darkest night, a shining light that guides us through the cold, defying winter's icy, icy bite and keeping hope alive so brave and bold. May this new year bring success to his cause and bring us closer to a brighter shore. (laughs) <laughs> damn tyler really that's good tyler you didn't didn't realize you had that in you did you my god well, I've you know it wasn't all just i've never had anybody write a poem to me so i must tell you i'm very touched all right jim well you're the real poet here why don't you uh send us off with one more of yours okay this is the anhinga the ponds are heavy filled with water the birds gathered up for this author ibis and coots cormorants and moorhens all feeding together like a group of friends they move in the water and up on the land green floating pads pushed aside by the band some are competing feeding aggressively others lay back and move in cunningly the snake bird, the Anhinga, stands out, unique, an animistic, an animistic god daring you to speak. I can see the heathen worshippers celebrating the neck, hoping to keep bad fortune in check. The Anhinga moves like a submarine, periscope rays tell engine not seen, a magnificent paddle and identifying mark. I'm sure glad the Anhinga made Noah's Ark. Wallaceville was saved by those who cared, who were willing to fight, stood and dared to take on authority to challenge the boys who used to treat nature as their toys. A reservoir, a reservoir proposed that was not needed, a message delivered yet often not heeded, a plea to find less damaging ways to preserve our heritage for future days. Today I gaze at this wonderful snake bird and know I must try with a well-chosen word to convey the awe and love that I feel for this natural jewel so fine, so real. Today I attended Earth Church at Wallaceville, and what I found here will ward off ill. This bird, the snake, has infused my spirit. I'll take this good karma, hold it, and use it. So welcome to Earth Church. Pull yourself up a pew. Come and see the Anhinga. It has a message for you. And that poem was about really the defeat of the Wallaceville Reservoir at the Trinity Delta at the top of Galveston Bay. And the fact that we've got a 25,000 acre nature preserve there because people were willing to stand up and fight. And hopefully we won't need to as much in the future, but we must always be ready. Absolutely, Jim. Well, what an 
What a treat uh, for our listeners. What a treat for us at uh, Coastal News Today and on ASPN on the network to have an annual uh, sit down with you, Jim, on the Texas Coastal Holiday newsletter. I look forward to getting it every year and uh, look forward to having you back on uh, next year for the 2023 newsletter. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it's Jim Blackburn. He is the chief executive officer of B Carbon a nonprofit organization that is working to develop coastal carbon credits suitable for commercial use uh, to lower the carbon footprint on the planet and also restore the incredible habitat of the Texas coast. Uh, Jim, absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for taking time out and uh, talking to our listeners. Merry Christmas. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Tyler. And um, happy holidays to all of you. Oh, I'm